You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joined in God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Every person is formed by two stories. I don't know if you ever thought about that in your own life. We're formed by two stories, the stories we live and the stories we live into. And within each of these stories are a number of different things that give these stories authority and meaning. And these different things that give these stories authority and meaning offer explanations as to why we act the way we act and respond the way we respond. And we'll talk more about that next week. But I wanted to begin at least this conversation by exploring and recognizing that our lives are formed by two stories. The first story that our lives are formed by are our particular biographies. These are the stories that come to us through our upbringing, our relationships, our collective experiences, our value systems, our cultures. And together they form the story we live. This is me being raised in South Georgia by Fred and Tammy Ligon, a father who was a hard worker, a mother who was... Uh, a hard worker until she became ill. That framed my story to when I was 13, I started working in a country grocery store. When I was 15, I took on two more jobs to help my families pay the bills. And I grew up, and that, was, that forms the story that I live. It's informed how I see work. It's informed how I see family. It's informed how I see life. The other story is the story we live into. This is the story that arises from our vision of what life can be. This is our vision of what we consider to be a good and meaningful life. This is the vision of life that involves white picket fences and spouses and children and careers. For some of us, it's simply the so-called American dream. This is a story that helps us understand who we are and how we're going to go about building a life for ourselves. This is the story that gives us direction and will inevitably continue to shape the values we hold. It will inevitably shape the decisions we make. It will inevitably determine how we engage the world all the way down to the person sitting next to us this morning. And the Christian faith that we proclaim arises from a very particular story. It's a story revealed to us in the Hebrew and Christian Scriptures we call the Bible, and it's a story lived out in the history of the church. This particular story that we claim to live into is a story that claims to be the true story of God for the world. And it claims to be the true story of what it means to be human and makes the most sense out of the daily realities we experience. It's the true story that claims to be the true story of God's intentions with the world, where the world has been, where it's headed, why it's in the shape it's in, where it's going to land when it's all said and done, and then how we live in the midst of all of that. It's the story that tells us that we can learn how to live now in anticipation of how the story ends because God's let us in on it. This is the story we're invited to live into. And the question for us is, do we live into this second story as if we know the true story of God in the world, or have we bought into a different story? And I think some of us have bought into a different story. And we don't realize it. That's the subtlety of, of our lives is we don't tend to our lives so well 
And so we buy into these second stories, these other stories, these stories that end up being sort of false narratives, and we fail to hold on to the true story of God and His intentions with the world and where it's all headed. Over the last few weeks, we had talked about fear. And we were learning to surrender our fears to God, trusting that love casts out fear. And it's important for us because I think we live in a world that promotes fear. You know, and I've said it before, don't vote for this guy um, or your children will die, you know. Governments spend inordinate amounts of money based upon fear. Businesses drive products with subtle, very subtle, fear-based marketing strategies and many of us to easily surrender our lives to fear. Just two days ago on vacation, I was asked by a good friend of mine what I would do if the zombie apocalypse was real. Valid question. Before I could answer, my friend was offering his strategy. And Allison and I sat there for a few moments just kind of listening. And then again, he asked what I would do. And I said, well, I guess I'd be eating and going to glory while you guys are frantically scrambling for survival. I mean, come on, a zombie apocalypse? I- I'm no Rick Grimes, you know what I'm saying? Like, like I'm going to get eaten by folks who are supposedly already dead, so I'm just going to have to stake my claim in the story and go and be with Jesus. Many of us have bought into a different kind of second story, one that promises the vision of a good life as defined by the American dream, and it becomes our standard by which we measure our success. Home ownership, spouse, children, professional credentials, retirement packages. I have a dear friend who's a faithful and passionate follower of Jesus. Things aren't going the way he wanted in his life. And a few days ago, well, a few, yeah, a few days ago, he called me. Because for a few days, his mind and self-perceived failures were getting the best of him and leading him on the edge of depression. And when I asked him what was wrong, he began to tell me that he's in his mid-40s. He's never owned a house. He's moved many times. And now he's starting over in his career. Now what you need to know about this brother is he has led, Lord knows, how many people to see the beauty that is King Jesus. And yet he finds himself in this moment where he's questioning his whole identity. And it didn't take long for us to reorient his life to remind him that his purpose and success isn't bound up in the American dream and his notions of the good life isn't bound up in in the vision of the good life that America itself offers, rather His life is bound up in God's kingdom dream and God's vision for the good life. As a matter of fact, we talked about how success probably shouldn't be his chief concern, but faithfulness should be. And just for a moment, for a few days, he lost sight of his second story that he's living into and took on a new one. Now, I mentioned this before, And I hesitate to mention it again, but I have to 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 help with this conversation. If the movie Titanic is on, I am oddly drawn to watch it. I'll give my man card to ERT when, when I leave today. And as if that isn't embarrassing enough, I find myself getting so caught up in the drama of the story that I forget that I know what I know. The boat will sink and Jack will die. You remember the scene? Tweet. Tweet. 
that little annoying whistle. And seriously, I, I find myself in that scene where the ship begins to turn singing, no, 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 don't sing. And then I have to realize, I remember, I know the end of the story. Like, why am I caught up in the drama of the story? And that is how our life often works. We know the end of the story that we live into as, as God's people, but we get so caught up in the drama of the unfolding of the story that we forget that we know the end. And our getting caught up in the drama of the story causes us to lose sight of who we are. To lose sight of where the world is and where it's headed. And the reality is God has a very different dream and vision for us in His world. And it's a vision rooted in the story revealed to us through the pages of Scripture and unfolds among us by the power of God's Spirit through the presence of the risen King Jesus and His inbreaking kingdom in the here and now. This this story that arises from the pages of Scripture proposes a different kind of world for us, a different kind of future for us. A world and what it looks like when Jesus is actually Lord of it and people surrender to that Lordship. And if we can learn to see God's vision for the world that He loves, we'll see the world as it is, as it is becoming, and as it will one day be. And then God's vision for the world will develop within us a different imagination, a different way of thinking about the world, where we can envision what kind of life actually makes sense and really works in a society when Jesus really is Lord over all. And this can affect how we love our neighbors, how we live in our workplaces. It can affect how we do life in college campuses as in our classrooms. It can affect how we engage the man at the checkout counter, the woman who serves the table at the restaurant that we're going to eat this afternoon. And it affects every other everyday place we encounter. And this renewed imagination that is stirred by this vision of God has the power to reorient our lives and set our feet on the solid ground of God's story and lead us into everyday places as a people who share in the beauty of God's presence, just reign, and perfect shalom. It's God's vision for the world. And I believe God's vision for the world is revealed to us in the first two chapters of Genesis. So if you have your Bibles, open to Genesis 1. And don't gloss over it because you might have read it a hundred times. Slow down and let's be with the text. Let's enter into the text. Let's dwell with the text just for a moment. In Genesis 1 verse 26, here's, here's how it unfolds. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will what? Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, all the earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. Now listen to the redundancy of the text. So God created man in His own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and what? Subdue it, and what? Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. In a few short verses, the, the writer of Genesis is very repetitive. He wants us to catch something. He wants us to catch that God's intentions for humanity was to live with God and be present with God as they experienced His perfect shalom, His wholeness and His well-being. And then humanity was to experience the bounty and beauty of fruitfulness, fruitfulness who as God's image bearers were created to share in His just reign. 
by representing His reign over all creation by exercising dominion over creation. Adam and Eve were commissioned as God's governors on behalf of the rightful King of creation to ensure that His will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is God's vision for the world. And I come to that conclusion because I know how it all ends. Because how it all ends looks very much the same. And I've come to believe that as Christ followers, we'd know our story much better if we read the beginning from the end. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, the church of Christ bears witness to the end of all things. It lives from the end. It thinks from the end. It acts from the end. It proclaims its message from the end. So if you have your Bibles, flip to the very end. Revelation 21 and 22, which is the closing scene of the entire story as we know it. And here, John describes a vision of a new heavens and new earth where God's new genesis, God's new creation bursts forth and His intentions with the world and humanity is realized once and for all in and through Jesus as Lord. If you look at Revelation 21, 3-4, listen to how it ends. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity. And He will live with them. They will be His people. And God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death will no longer exist. Grief, crying, and pain will no longer exist because the previous things have passed away. And then one chapter later, it comes to Revelation 22, verse 1, and John says, Then He showed me the river of living water, sparkling like crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the broad street of the city. The tree of life, you see some themes in Genesis, the tree of life was on both sides of the river, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations, and there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. Night will no longer exist, and people will not need lamplight or sunlight, because the Lord God will give them light. Read this last sentence with me. And they will reign forever and ever. That's God's vision for the world. And we live as though we have no authority and power in this world whatsoever. We live as though we almost have no say-so as to where this world ends up, which we don't because our God has said where it's going to go. And we live like we don't know the end of the story. We live as if writing the end of the story is up to us. And yet we know where it goes. John's language in Revelation points back to an Old Testament prophet named Isaiah who in the middle of this unfolding story of God's redemptive work tried to call God's people back to living into what God had begun in Genesis. Listen to what he says in Isaiah 25, beginning verse 6. The Lord of hosts will prepare a feast for all the peoples on this mountain, a feast of aged wine, choice meat, finely aged wine. I think Isaiah was stoked about the wine. Actually, like, did I mention the wine that God was going to... Sermon. And on this mountain, he'll destroy the burial shroud, the shroud over all the peoples, all the, all the separations will be torn down. It's beautiful stuff. The sheet covering all the nations, all the, all the national distinctions will be torn down. And he will destroy death, what? Forever. The Lord God will what? Wipe away the tears. You see themes? From every face and remove his people's disgrace. And the whole earth, not half the earth, not part the earth, it ain't going to all burn. The whole earth 
for the Lord has spoken. Isaiah 65, 17-18, he goes on. For I will create a new heaven and a new earth. The past events will not be remembered or come to mind. Then be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating. Isaiah 66, 22, For just as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, will endure before me, this is the Lord's declaration, so your offspring and your name will endure. From the start, from the start, we find that God's intention in the, in the whole earth is He's interested in it becoming His temple, His dwelling place, where His presence will fill every place and space of creation. Even Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 28, that when everything is subject to Christ, the Son Himself will also be subject to the One who subjected everything to Him. And here's the key, so that God, what? May be all in all. God is moving and seeing this world in a very different way than we are. And yet He's given us the ending. I think in hopes that we'll live in light of the ending. So we won't find ourselves in the middle of the drama hoping the boat don't sink. We can know where God is going with the world. And we can live into that promise. And if we define our lives from the end, and live that way. How we love our neighbors, love our spouses, how we live in the presence of God will be completely different. God's intentions have never changed. If the zombie apocalypse comes, it probably ain't. Alright, I mean... In God's vision for the world, I think we see three themes. And I owe Pastor and Professor Barry Jones a, a lot of this part here. We see three themes in God's vision for the world. It's connected to His presence. God's vision for the world is connected to His just reign. And God's vision for the world is connected to His perfect shalom. And all three, His presence, just reign, and perfect shalom are connected with these texts that we just talked about and cast one vision. And that's the vision of God. So I want to do a little detail I want to do a little detailed work on Genesis for a moment so we can see this even further because this sets the tone for everything we do for the next seven weeks. So look back at Genesis 1 and then kind of keep your finger at Revelation 21 and 22 and I want you to notice some themes. In Genesis 1 and 2, the creation account is written in such a way that the ancient readers would have understood a purposeful connection, a purposeful connection to royalty and dominion to the reign of God over all creation. And I'm going to, I may seem like I'm talking over our heads for a minute, but I want to try and keep this low, so stay with me if you can. The account of Genesis begins by saying that the earth was what? How was the earth? Formless and void, right? And so over the course of three days, God brings form, and then over the course of the next three days, God fills the earth. He fills the emptiness. And what we may not remember or realize is that the, Israels were not, the Israelites were not the only ones who claimed to know how the world began, just like today. There's lots of ideas as to how the world began. Well, back in, God, back in the Israelites' day, back when this text was even offered to the world, there were many creation narratives that existed in ancient Near Eastern cultures and the neighbors of the Israelites and the Hebrew people. Other people had an idea. But the depiction of Genesis 1 stands in great contrast with every single other creation narrative in its time. And other stories rivalries and conflicts between various gods broke out and created chaos. And out of that chaos, a created order came. That was pretty much the story of every ancient Near Eastern culture. 
And then creation was inherently flawed because chaos and rivalries were from which creation came. But in Israel's story, God creates without rival and without conflict, and He creates by the word of His mouth. And then He takes great joy in all He has made and declares it good, 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 and very good. And we understand in light of the context and time Genesis was recorded, if we understand it, it seems that the whole point of creation seems to be that Israel's God is the one who created everything. And so many of the things that God said was good were the same things that many of Israel's neighbors worshipped. Missing the one true creator God. Genesis 1 makes it clear that the God of Israel is the sovereign creator of everything that exists and the whole creation is under His divine and just reign. Now what makes this story stand in more contrast from other ancient Near Eastern stories, and this is important, so, so stay with me, this is important, is that Israel's God created humans as His image bearers. Imago Dei, as His image bearers. Now that is extremely absurd and important all at the same time. Because in other ancient Near Eastern creation stories, the only one created in the image of God was a king. In every other creation narrative that all the other pagan peoples and all the other neighbors of Israel had, the only one created in the image of God was a king. And then all the other created peoples, all the other human beings were created to serve as slaves and servants to the gods and their royal image bearers. But in Israel's creation story, Every human is created in the image of God. Every human has royal blood. Every human. And every human stands above all other creation. Right in the outset of the narrative of the Scriptures, God's people establish an entirely different way of seeing the world. And in Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22, we find descriptions of God's intentions with His world and the way things should and will be. And the rest of the story from the Garden of Genesis to the city of Revelation is the story of the mission of God to rescue, renew, and restore His good but broken creation to its perfect shalom where His image bearers experience the royal citizenship of the kingdom. And this is the story that we're invited to live into. Which is why Paul in Romans 5, verse 17, and then 20 and 21 says this, Since by the one man's trespass, that's Adam, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness, say this with me, reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say, But where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in the eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul wants our imaginations to be renewed by the vision of God for the world so that our lives are reoriented for the mission of God for the sake of the world. We do not have to live as though we don't know where the world is headed. We do not have to live as though death has the final word or cancer has the final word or loss of job has the final word. We do not have to live as though crazy children have the final word. We do not have to live as though anything has the final word other than the one who overcame death 
and the reign of sin and death. We don't have to live in any other way. We don't have to live as though we're the only ones who can write the end of the story. We don't have to live as though we can pull ourselves up to our own bootstraps because have you ever literally tried to do that? It isn't possible. We are not the ones who are supposed to live according to the American dream. And the vision that society offers us, we're called to live according to the kingdom dream and the vision that God offers us. We don't have to live in fear of some zombie apocalypse or nuclear explosion. We just don't. Because God has made a promise that He's capable of keeping and He's told us how it's all going to end up. And if we live into that story, we might find we reign in life. Right, Shirley? We might find that we can look at all the things that the devil and his bunch want to throw us and say, you got nothing on me. We might be able to live in such a way to where sin doesn't have to dominate my own life. We might be able to live in such a way as though death doesn't have the final word. And I think that's why Paul says in Romans 12, which comes after Romans 5, Therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And don't be conformed to this age. Don't live as though that the stories that are being told to you are the stories that are true. Don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed by what? Renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good and perfect pleasing will of God. In other words, have a new imagination. You know why we can't envision a world where enemies are prayed for and loved and blessed? Because we bought into other narratives that tell us it's not possible. You know why we live in a world where hunger dominates and kills orphans and people? Because we can't imagine a world where we actually share things. And go without for the sake of the other, which Jesus taught us to do. You know why we live in a world where divorce and brokenness and betrayal runs rampant? Because we don't we can't imagine a world where God can bring life from dead things. We're prisoners of other stories and we're not prisoners of hope. You know why we live in a world where Everything is fluid and people can wake up and decide what they want to be and who they want to be because it's their own truth. Because we can't imagine a world where Jesus Christ is the Lord and Creator of all and only He has the right to say what kind of life really works. We just can't imagine this world because our imaginations aren't fueled by anything less than the stories we bought into. But if we would live into, if we'd live into this story, we'd be capable of imagining a different way of being and doing in the world all the way down to our addresses in Williamsburg, Virginia. We would imagine a different kind of life wherein one where self-giving love guides all relationships instead of self-serving love. When where peace, shalom, and wholeness would, would become the priority over fear and hatred. It would be a world where truth is embraced and grounds our lives instead of our feelings or our emotions or our pluralistic cultural relativism or our political agendas. We'd be capable of imagining a world where God's definition of justice, setting right in the world what has been broken by the reign of sin and death, would become an inherent 
part of our discipleship simply because we've come to believe deep within our bones that all of life, all of life is sacred to God. From conception to birth to childhood to adulthood to old age to death, all of life is sacred to God. We would understand for the first time possibly in 250 years what it means to truly be pro-life, to be for life like God is for life. Because all of life and every life matters to God. And this is a way of imagining a society where we work, church, where we work, where we stop being consumers, where we work to make sure orphans find families, that those living through homelessness are housed, that the elderly are valued, that those who lost a spouse are supported, that the hurting are comforted, that the lonely are visited that those living with developmental disabilities are welcomed and embraced. It's a way of imagining a society where we work to make sure the hungry are fed, the naked are clothed, the unborn are protected, and when they are born, still protected, while their mothers, their birth mothers are still loved and cared for. It's a way of imagining a society where the immigrant and foreigner is received in gracious hospitality because we all recognize we were all foreigners once too, and where enemies are prayed for, blessed, and eventually loved. It is a way of imagining a society where all people can actually be forgiven, redeemed, and restored no matter what sins or wrongs have been committed. And we imagine this world because we as God's people share in His vision for the world. We choose to see people differently because we know how God sees people. And it changes how we live. Because we share in His vision for the sake of His mission. Over the course of this conversation, we'll grow in our understanding of the true story of God and His world revealed to us in the Scriptures. And we'll learn specific and tangible practices that will make us more attentive and receptive to God's vision so we can put skin on it in everyday places. Scholar N.T. Wright has written, We are called to be part of God's new creation. Called to be agents of that new creation here and now. We're called to model and display that new creation in symphonies and family life. In restorative justice and poetry. In holiness and service to the poor. In politics and painting. As Barry Jones once suggested, Christianity lives from the end of the story. Prays from the end of the story. It eats, drinks, laughs, loves, struggles, plays, and dreams from the end of the story. And as it does, it lives into the story of the vision of God. So my question is really easy. And frankly, I think my question is intensely practical. How can living into the end of the story change how you live right now? How can it change how you love the person sitting next to you? how you engage the waiter or waitress you engage over lunch, how you see world events, and how you drive by the person flying a sign asking for some food or something to eat. How can living from the end of that story change how you see your own past so that your present is shaped not by your authorizing narratives of the past, but by the narrative of authority given to us the Scriptures as revealed to us in Jesus Christ as King and Lord.